Welcome to Museum Life with Carol Bossert. Museums are important whether we work in them, for them, or simply love visiting them. Throughout history, people have collected things and put them on display to enjoy. But today's museums offer much more than rooms filled with stuff. They provide places to learn and share experiences with family and friends, as well as sanctuaries to unplug, rest, and refresh. On today's show, we'll discuss how museums can remain relevant and sustainable, reach out to new audiences, and remain attuned to cultural and technological trends. Now, here's your host, Carol Bossert. Welcome to Museum Life. This is Carol Bossert. I am so glad that you have chosen to join us today. Um, In creating the title for today's show, I had lots of fun with puns and play on words uh, because the uh, show is all about footwear, so it would have been fun to start to talk about steps and stomps and things. But for all of the fun I had in creating the title for the show, and I am excited, very excited to uh, be talking about the Batashu Museum today, uh, this is uh, not trivial. And there are many interesting things that we can learn both about uh, museum studies as well as material culture. And so I am thrilled to be able to talk about this today. Also, the Batashu Museum, located in Toronto, has just celebrated its 20th uh, anniversary, and it has uh, also started a a traveling, its first traveling exhibition that will open uh, in New York at the the Brooklyn Museum. And finally, it is, as some of my listeners, you know, I've said this before, uh, the Batashu Museum is truly one of my very favorite museums. And as I was getting ready and preparing for this show, I was uh, looking through one of my desk drawers, and I actually found the uh, Batashu Museum button that I bought uh, the first time I visited the museum about 15 years ago. So it gives me me especially great pleasure to have on my show today the curator of the Batashu Museum, Elizabeth Semelhack. Uh, Elizabeth, welcome to the show. It's just a pleasure to have you. Thank you so much. Uh, Elizabeth, why don't I, of course, did not give you much of, a, of an introduction, so <laughs> if you would just, and, and uh, uh, you certainly do deserve one, uh, could you just share with uh, our listeners a little bit about your career trajectory and um, how you landed at the Batashu Museum? Absolutely. Well, you know, there is no direct course <laughs> uh, to to landing here. I mean, I think that many museum curators have interesting routes uh, that they take to get to where they are. And I started mine uh, way back in undergraduate. I went to Bennington and I studied, you know, Bennington was an amazing environment. And I think what I learned at Bennington was how to fearlessly ask questions. Um, I was not studying art history at that point, but after I graduated, I moved to New York City, and I began to, I actually started working for IBM. IBM had a gallery in Manhattan at the corner of Madison and uh, 57th. And I, as I was working there, I realized that the questions 
that were being asked in art history were really compelling. So I decided to go on to do my graduate work um, in art history. And I went to Tufts. I did a terminal master's at Tufts. And I studied a lot of Western theory. I really love theory. Um, or more to the point, I like applying theory. And then I decided to really focus in on Japanese art history. And so Japanese art history uh, took me to Cornell and took me to Washington University, uh, <clears throat> pardon me, to do my doctorate work. And I was focusing on Japanese prints. And what I realize now, given that I work with footwear, is that Japanese prints, like footwear, are not, were not unique objects. I'm not an art historian or now a cultural historian who's necessarily interested in what the unique mind produces for the singular collector. I'm interested in mass-produced items that capture and speak to specific moments in time. And so the questions that I was asking of Japanese prints, which were very much about culture, gender construction, socioeconomics, um, are questions that I continue to ask now with my focus being on footwear. That's very interesting, and, and uh, I think that that is one of the things that I've always found that was unique about uh, the Bata Shoe Museum is that, uh, and, and actually just even the, in the vocabulary, I mean, yes, it's about shoes, but you've expanded it to footwear, and while that may be a subtle semantic difference, uh, I think it's very important in how you begin to look at what you can learn from uh, these materials and how it reflects a broader material culture that I have always found very, very interesting. Uh, so how did you then move from your experience in Japanese prints to actually landing the job at the Batashu Museum? <laughs> well, you know, I, I, the, the real story is that my mother, um, who was an intellectual uh, properties lawyer, happened to be in Toronto. She actually is an international intellectual properties lawyer. <clears throat> and she came to an event at the museum and heard Mrs. Bata speak and saw the museum. I was in St. Louis at the St. Louis Art Museum at the time, focused on Japanese art history. And she called me after and she said, I just came, saw the most amazing collection, heard the most amazing woman speak you really should check out the Batashu Museum. It'd be perfect for you. And I thought, mother, what are you talking about? I do Japanese art history. What do I, you know, I, I just, we, we, we changed the subject pretty quickly. But then about three months after that conversation, the job of chief curator opened and the job description was fascinating. I realized that shoes offered, especially this collection, which is so wide-ranging, um, offered could offer me an opportunity to really do what I love to do, which is make connections. And so in part fully intrigued by what the job description was and in part to appease my mother, I, I applied for the job. And the next thing you knew, I got it. And when I landed here, I thought, okay, well, this is – interesting, what is the history of the history of researching footwear? And I found out that it's, it, there isn't that much. And so that also was extremely intriguing for me um, that here I'd landed on a subject that sort of felt like the Wild West of scholarship. And that if I could just ask 
interesting questions, I would in fact find incredibly interesting answers. And so that I didn't know how long I'd last, <laughs> but I've been here for 15 years and I can tell you that my questions just keep increasing. And what I find so exciting about working with footwear is that Everybody wears it. It's worn around the world. It's been worn throughout time. And we might think that footwear has little or is, is, is on the fringes of culture, but footwear actually in many ways um, is foundational to ideas of status and, and gender. And so I have been having a very, very good time um, trying to unravel some of these stories. Oh, that's great. Uh, there are very few times in our lives where we can further our career and make our moms happy at the very same time. So congratulations for doing <laughs> thank that. You, thank you very but, much. <laughs> uh, thanks, Mom. But exactly. I want it. Well, you know, and I, I think, and I think the lesson here, really, you know, when I when I I get a lot of young. Uh, museum professionals or, or, or people who want to enter into the field. And I think that the lesson, if there is any lesson here, is to figure out what the core of what you're actually interested in is and be flexible with how you're willing to get those needs met. Like, I realize that I love Japanese art history, but in some ways I'm, I was more driven by these issues of how does clothing um, represent gender or help construct gender and status. And so I could, could take that core interest and apply it to a different set of objects, but still be as satisfied. Ah, uh, that's that is a great piece of advice. Uh, I want to follow up then on something that that you did say earlier, just to make sure that it doesn't get lost. Uh, your mother heard a lecture uh, uh, by Mrs. Bata. So, um, is it true that the Bata Shoe Museum was was founded on a collection of a single individual? Yes, um, this is. It is a, uh, an amazing collection. It was all collected by Mrs. Sonia Bata. Uh, Mrs. Bata married Mr. Bata, uh, and the Bata Shoe Company um, is one of the largest shoe companies in the world. And so as a young woman, she wanted to be a, a part of the company, and she wanted to travel with her husband. They have, um, and at that point, had factories, manufacturing sites around the world. And so she made a very astute observation as she began to travel with her husband, which was that although people's feet are basically the same, no matter where you go, what they put on their feet is incredibly different. And so there has to be a great deal of information embedded in those different types of footwear. So she began collecting examples. And I think pretty early on, the collecting bug really captured her. And so she began to increase her collection, deepen her collection. Uh, we have the largest moccasin collection in the world. We have an incredible 18th century uh, Western fashion collection. Uh, the oldest piece dates back 4,500 years to ancient Egypt. The most recent uh, pair are some sneakers that have been donated by um, a designer in New York. And so we really have an incredible breadth, and each and every piece, all 13,000 artifacts, have been collected by Mrs. Bata. Wow, and 
Um, so, and obviously, Mrs. Bata is still alive. So this she is not, uh, is. that seems uh, very unique in the museum world where there, there is a, one, a single donor uh, who amassed a collection and a donor who is still, I assume, actively collecting. She is, and I think that it is interesting because I, I think that the collection itself is an artifact of one woman's collecting, and so that brings in sort of interesting uh, ideas about the, you know, this whole sort of uh, feeling of the collection. Uh, she is an incredibly engaged uh, and interested collector, and so for a curator to work with somebody who is both devoted to the subject matter and eager to collect is, I think, a dream come true. What uh, what particular insight, I agree with you, I, I, I think that that would be such a rare experience. What insights have you gained um, by uh, as a curator by being able to work with and talk with this, uh, with the collector? Well, I think that, that she and I both share this, you know, similar passion. And so I know that if I find an artifact that is amazing, that she will be as intrigued as I am and we can talk about it. I think that it's wonderful working in such a small institution that really there's her to talk to. I mean, you know, if we want to access some or acquire something or or add something to the collection. Um, Also, just having her own remembrances for how each and every piece got into the collection, I think, is also incredible, particularly for primary research uh, for historians of the future. And she is also so open-minded to footwear from around the world. So the collection itself is very, very varied. And I think that that adds a great deal of interest. And then on top of it, I think some of the things that I've learned from her is that she's in a, she's so good at seeing. She has a, an eye for quality, so we have sort of the luxury of having very beautiful examples. But she also can see very clearly the artifacts that she's looking at, and I think that she was absolutely the best teacher, um, given that when I first arrived, footwear was not my primary, had not been my primary focus of study. I really learned from her to, to, to see details of construction, details of quality um, that I may have missed if I hadn't had such a great teacher. That, uh, that does seem like an incredibly Im- important uh, learning experience, uh, particularly, as you said, uh, once you tried to find out, there was very little academic uh, uh, base. Correct. Um, to uh, uh, upon which to build. Are there any other uh, shoe collections, uh, shoe collection curators that you were able to talk with? Um, there are you- there are other uh, museum collections, absolutely, and there's some fantastic collections out there. And there, I do have colleagues and uh, Rosito Neno at the uh, museum, the German Museum of Leather, and they also have a sh- an attendant shoe museum is fantastic researcher. Uh, June Swan, she used to be at the Northampton Museum. She, I would consider to be the person who really paved the way for sh- 
issue history to be taken seriously. She's done incredible work um, researching with great detail uh, the history of uh, aspects of European footwear. English footwear is her specialty. And, and so I think that these individuals really do set an example and allow for a kind of collegiality, which is fantastic to have in the field. Uh, but I'm assuming that you don't yet have your own uh, uh, annual conference. No. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> I think we would just need a COPA table for that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I can imagine uh, how, how wonderful it is and, and how fulfilling it, it is to be on the uh, feeling, well, as you said, uh, the, the, uh, what, the uh, Wild West of uh of of uh of academic research uh field and but to have these wonderful colleagues to share these insights and i i would suspect that uh as your as the museum grows in stature as it has as well as now these uh traveling exhibitions which we will uh, talk about in a few in a few minutes uh is really going to expand i would assume interest in this uh this very specialized but but uh interesting field yeah, I feel that, you know, when the museum first opened, I think people may have thought of it as a quirky concept. But given how how respected uh, the museum is now and given how popular footwear exhibitions in other institutions are, I think that uh, not to pat ourselves on the back too much, but I think that we have helped to bring the scholarship related to footwear more to the fore and to have it be respected and move beyond seeming um, simply quirky. Uh, and I think you've done a very good job of that as as well. And I and I uh, recommend highly for everyone listening to the show. Uh, the Battashu Museum is is in Toronto. It is relatively easy to get to. Toronto, of course, is also a beautiful city. And so next time you're in Toronto, make sure that you see the museum. And even if you've seen it before, as I have, uh, there are so many new and different things that uh, they are continuing to display. And in fact, uh, after we get back from the break, uh, Elizabeth and I are going to talk about uh, some of the ways that she has identified uh, ideas for exhibitions and also her own very specialized area of research in this field that I know you're going to find very interesting. But we're going to first take a brief break, and when we come back, more with Elizabeth Semelhack at the uh, Batum Shoe Museum. We, I am always very interested and pleased when uh, listeners email or or call, uh, text, tell me, uh, and uh, uh, talk to me on Twitter about uh, what you like about the show and uh, other guests that you would like to uh, to hear. And so please keep those communications coming. It really is gratifying to know that there are so many of you out there listening. And uh, with that, we will be back in just a moment. This is Carol Bossert for Museum Life. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com The world we live in has become a crazy place. Poverty is at an all-time high in the wealthiest nation on Earth. We keep calling on government to save us with new programs. And now, we have more people using food stamps than any time in our history. This problem continues to get worse. 
The answer to poverty is in our homes, churches, and communities, and through our children. Get the answers from The Mickey Ellison Show, Wednesdays at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern, on Voice America Variety. Are you ready for an anything-goes, hour-long foray into politics, pop culture, and societal tribulations? Then look no further than Between the Synapse with host Mark Tobin. Each show features nationally or internationally prominent guests discussing topics that go beyond the usual daily news, sometimes even way beyond. It's a weekly fast-paced hour that you won't want to miss. Call in to join the party. Between the Synapse airs live every Thursday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Variety. Voice America presents a new kind of health awareness talk show, the Sharon Kleina Hour, health, environment, and the power of water. Show host Sharon Kleina interviews leading scientists to discover how each of us can become proactive in protecting our personal health environment in an increasingly unhealthy world. Every show offers new information that could save your life. The Sharon Kleina Hour is health from an environmental perspective, your ultimate source for a personal environmental lifestyle. Listen Mondays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel and Wednesdays at 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You're tuned into Museum Life with Carol Bossert. To reach our program today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to carol.bossert at verizon.net. Now, back to Museum Life. Welcome back. This is Carol Bossert. Uh, you're listening to Museum Life, and today we are talking with Elizabeth Semelhack, who is the curator of the Battashu Museum in Toronto. And uh, before break, uh, Elizabeth and I were beginning to talk about uh, how the collection came to be and uh, some of the interesting academic research that uh, has been that has sparked her interest in. Um, in shoes and footwear. And so Elizabeth, uh, and in fact, when Elizabeth and I were, were just talking during the break, we realized that the, uh, the first time I went up to the Battashu Museum, I saw a fabulous uh, temporary exhibition. I came back and told everybody about it, and in, it turned out that this was Elizabeth's very first exhibit. Uh, that she had done when she got to uh, to the museum, and it, it was called the history of the high heel. So, Elizabeth, and and it was not a it, again it, it was a it was a fascinating uh, and very thoughtfully done exhibition. I learned a lot, which to me is the hallmark of of a wonderful exhibition. And so, Elizabeth. Uh, have you continued to uh, do research on high heels? Indeed, I have. Uh, and, and how that actually came about, because I didn't arrive at the museum uh, determined to sort of figure out the history of the high heel. When I first was hired, the museum was working on an exhibition on Chinese foot binding. 
And obviously, I'd done uh, Asian art history. I mean, my focus was Japan, but I'd been very interested and had studied quite a bit of Chinese art history. So I felt very comfortable with the exhibition. And I was able to work with uh, Dorothy Coe, who's at Columbia University. She's a fa- she did a fabulous job. And after the exhibition was up, there were lots of calls for tours to the exhibition, lectures on the topic. And so I eagerly did all these things. And I found that people's reactions to these very small shoes for adult women, you know, the ideal size for a a Han woman's foot in Imperial China was three to three and a half inches. Um, People couldn't stop asking questions. How was the foot so dramatically changed? How did they wear these shoes? How did they walk in them? On and on and on. And then, and so these people's reactions were so, interested in so they couldn't, like I said, they couldn't contain their questions. And so I realized maybe halfway through the year that the exhibition was up that half the people who were asking me these questions would teeter away in high heels. And I thought, how come we can see shoes for bound feet? But in many ways, we were blind to the high heel. We see high heels and say, those are great looking shoes, or you look hot, or um, that's, uh, you know, who, who designed them. But we weren't asking at that point, why? Where did the, even the idea for putting something so high at the back of our heel, uh, where did that come from? It's so illogical. It doesn't help with mobility. I mean, it, it really helped me question this idea that shoes seem to have a very basic job to do, protect our feet and help us walk, and high heels were flying in the face of that so profoundly. And then even more to the point, my question was, why do only half of us wear them? So I decided that I needed to figure out who or where had the high heel um, originated, how did it enter Western fashion, and why is it that only women today wear them? And so those questions themselves are actually quite, you, you can expand quite a bit on them. And so Heights of Fashion was my first uh, stab at, uh, at, at looking at this very long and very complex history. And so when did the high heel uh, make its appearance on, on the, uh, uh, the fashion scene and on the feet of women? Well, it actually is in, as, as my research shows, it dates way, way back uh, in Western Asia. And the earliest piece that I've seen is a, is a 10th century bowl, Persian bowl, that's held at the Museum of Fine Arts Boston. And it shows a rider wearing heeled footwear and using the stirrup. And that is really the, the I mean, that piece is, is depicts sort of the reason why the heel was invented. The heel seems to have been invented in Western Asia to secure the foot of the rider in the stirrup. Stirrups themselves were inventions that profoundly changed horseback riding and with it warfare. And so the heel, I argue, was an additional tool that allowed the rider to hook his foot into the stirrup and stand up in the stirrup and shoot his weapon, his bow and arrow typically. And so the heel actually was a tool related to equestrianism and warfare, and it was worn by men. My next question after I you know, sort of figured that out was, how did the high heel enter into Western dress? And one of the things that's interesting about the history of fashion and the history of, uh, about the history of European fashion is that Europeans 
traditionally looked to the East for luxury goods. Uh, the Silk Road is a perfect example of that. And Europeans have been borrowing aspects of Near Eastern uh, dress or Western Asian dress for centuries. And they were very, very well acquainted with the concept of heels. They appear in discussions, they appear in imagery in the 16th century, but nobody in Europe thought to add a heel to his shoe until the turn of the 17th century. And what I did was, because I'm very interested, I never feel that fashion is tangential to culture. I feel like it's a pillar of our political and economic structures. Uh, I had to ask the question, what happened at the turn of the 17th century to make European men interested in heeled footwear? And it has to do with the rise of Persia uh, as a trading partner and as a political ally and uh, against the Ottoman Empire. And it was under, Persia was rising under a very um, uh, uh, ambitious individual named Shah Abbas, and he was interested in creating alliances with Europeans, and he offered the largest mounted military in the world, all of whom wore heeled footwear, and this is what I think is why heels entered into Western dress as Western men began to add heels to their own riding boots, and eventually they became a signifier of power and status. Uh, and men wore heels for 130 years, happily. Well, and, and uh, well, certainly heels are, continue to be on dressage boots uh, in equestrian events. And I was just uh, real, uh, as you were talking, I said, well, of course, every cowboy boot in America. Exactly. Has, every has, cowboy has boot has in America. quite a heel. And so I feel, and, and, and so this is actually something that I'm looking at currently in an exhibition that's up called Standing Tall, The Curious History of Men in Heels. And I think that heels have actually been used as part of the sartorial expression of masculinity, rugged masculinity at that, given the cowboy as an example. And so heels, which I think some people think are, women are genetically encoded to wish to wear, um, are actually also worn by men. It's just that sometimes we can't see it uh, that way. And so I have tried to, with my research on the history of the high heel, both explore how it is that the slender high heel has come to be such a primary icon of femininity, and yet also consider how heels have been important to constructions of masculinity over the last 400 years. Um, so that's part of an exhibition that is currently at the Batashu Museum? It is, it is. It's sort of a Heights of Fashion Part 2. <laughs> That's that's great. It's I've often wondered, and perhaps you've been uh, looking at this as well, is that their uh, heels of various shapes and sizes and heights make distinctive sounds. Absolutely. I think that, um, in fact, one of the things that's so interesting and another question I had was that if men were the first to wear heels in Western dress, how is it that women came to wear heels as well? And so I looked into fa women's fashion around the turn of the 17th century, and there was a craze at that time in women's dress to, quote-unquote, borrow from their boyfriend's wardrobes. It's something that we've, we see fashion do quite a bit, women's fashion do over and over again. And so there was this moment where mannish women, as they were called, uh, began to wear rakish hats with plumes after masculine fashion. They even smoked tobacco pipes. You know, tobacco was just making its way into European uh, fashion. And uh, 
there, there are texts that criticize women for wearing boots and spurs, and they, are, they were, in fact, adding heels to their footwear in the effort to masculinize their attire. And one of the most masculine forms of heels footwear had to do with sound. One of the advantages of wearing the heel when you're, when you're horseback riding is that, as I said, it helps keep your foot in the stirrup. But as we all know, heels off the horse are highly impractical. And so in a pre-pavement world, um, heels were sinking in the mud left and right. And so men began to slip their heeled footwear into a second form of shoe, kind of like a slipper. And then they would walk around with these two forms of footwear on and make a slapping sound. It was called, and so then shoemakers began to combine these two forms of footwear and they were called slap soles. And I think that the reason why these are so popular with men is for that aural um, communication of I'm wearing the latest device, the latest fashion, the latest thing. And so when women began to go to their shoemakers and try, they tried to get the most masculine type of heeled footwear, they asked for slap soles as well. But women's slap soles had all the extant ones that I've seen have nails that come up through the sole of the quote unquote slipper, the mule and up to the, up through the heel, thereby uniting the two forms of footwear so that women could wear footwear that looked like slap soles, but weren't allowed to make a na- a sound. <laughs> yeah. Well, keep those women in the kitchen and quiet, I guess. Yeah. And, uh, and, it, and, and, and I think even today, right. When you're in a parking garage and you hear that tech, 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 tech of a stiletto heel, you know, I, I think we can sometimes breathe that sigh of relief. Oh, it's a woman who's in the underground with us. Um, but heels, I think, and the sounds that footwear in general makes uh, is a very important part of that history of high heels. And it's part of how we, even without seeing, can identify who we might be with. Uh, as I said, I was fascinated uh, 15 years ago, and I'm I am still fascinated with this with this topic. Uh, having recently uh, been in uh, in Manhattan and uh, watching these uh, all sorts of women uh, beautifully dressed, uh, wearing these very extremely high heels, uh, just. Uh, going at a great clip down uh, Manhattan sidewalks, I can't help but think about how they are, well, one, if they hurt, <laughs> right, and, 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 why, and why we put up with, uh, with pain or discomfort. Uh, you could, certainly, probably, I've never known a marathon runner uh, who is doing it in an elevated heel. Uh, and so I'm assuming that that is also something uh, that you begin to uncover and uh, learn about uh, through, through your research. Sounds as if shoes can really teach us a lot about who we are as a culture. Yeah, and one of the things that when I first got here and began to look at the collection, again, that, that, that prejudice that I, I myself had, which was, okay, the history of footwear is going to be related to practical issues, was not borne out by footwear anywhere in the world. There, there are beautifully beaded moccasins. There are uh, gold thread embroidered shoes from India. There are Chinese silk shoes for bound feet. None of these shoes are meant to be worn in the mud. Um, I mean, so often discomfort 
and luxury materials are used in fashion to express to the world what it is you don't have to do, what you have the luxury of not doing. And so high heels are part of that history as well, which is that you, you, if you're wearing a beautiful pair of $1,000 shoes, you're clearly not farming that day or, or doing manual labor. And so fashion is very important, um, even if it's uncomfortable and impractical. It's, it's practicality is in communicating social, um, social standing and social constructs more so than being practical for physical mobility. It might be helping you with social mobility more so than physical mobility. And I think it's interesting that you can find footwear that expresses that so clearly. I, I, uh, again, I think that's very interesting. And I think, and obviously there are ties uh, and parallels to other types of fashion. Uh, in women's fashion, we think of, of corsets and bustles and things that, you know, you, you wouldn't wear if you were having to scrub floors. Uh, but, uh, of course, the women of, of the highest uh, social uh, stratas weren't having to do those things. It also, the other point is uh, that you have made, but I don't know that we've made clearly enough, is that uh, in your study of footwear uh, and shoes, you're just not talking only about women's fashion. No, not at all. And I think that that, was, that has been one of the things that I found curious uh, and, and in many ways was the impetus for the sneaker exhibition, which is opening at the Brooklyn Museum on July 10th, and my Standing Tall exhibition, which is looking at men in heels, is that sort of maybe two or three years into my tenure here, I, when I would go to parties or meet people socially, and they would find out what it was I did, they would assume that I worked at a museum for women. And I thought, how interesting that the word shoe seems to itself suggest gender when we don't live in a society in which women are clothed and shod and men are naked and barefoot. I mean, that's not how we construct gender. We construct gender through different types of clothing for women and shoes and different types of clothing and footwear for men. And so I decided to take that prejudice, one might say, and turn it around and say, well, you know, there are a lot of men who are shoe crazy, you know, women are considered to be shoe crazy as though it's some kind of biological function, and, and point out that no, there are many men who are as interested in footwear as women, and more to the point too, men in most societies are also shod, and so footwear for them is as central to constructions of gender as it is for women. And so why don't we look at the types of shoes that are worn for men? And in fact, our collection itself is, I think, very evenly split between footwear created for women and footwear created for men. That's great. Um, and, and, and so very fascinating. Uh, 
uh, I too uh, was looking at the word shoe at one time and thinking, oh, well, sure, it's a, it's, it's like a, you know, it's a big woman's thing. closet. <laughs> <laughs> but, but it, it clearly, uh, there, there is much more to it. Uh, we're going to take our second break, and when we come back, uh, I want to follow up on something Elizabeth just mentioned, and that is a little bit more about this new exhibition that is traveling, is opening actually here in New York in uh, just a week or two about uh, the sneaker. So stay tuned. Uh, we will be back in a moment. You're listening to Museum Life, and this is Carol Bossert. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Close with Chris Tinney is now on Voice America Variety. Every Tuesday at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern, Chris brings you the thought leaders, activists, and socially responsible entrepreneurs taking action for the environment, doing business in a new way, and helping the underprivileged. Call in or listen in every Tuesday at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern, and learn how the small decisions you make today have a big impact on our small planet in the future. Tune in to Up Close with Chris Tinney on the Voice America Variety Channel. How do you achieve the utmost success in your life, career, faith, relationships, and more? It's all here in the business of living with host Scott Ventrella. Scott has experience as an executive coach, sought-after speaker, and lecturer. He and his guests will offer practical solutions and strategies to help you move to the next level of success no matter where you are in your life and career. The Business of Living airs live every Saturday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You're tuned into Museum Life with Carol Bossert. To reach our program today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to carol.bossert at verizon.net. Now, back to Museum Life. Welcome back. This is Carol Bossert, and today I have been talking with Elizabeth Semmelhack, the curator at the Battashu Museum, and right before we took our second break, Elizabeth was sharing with uh, with us fascinating uh, research that she has done about uh, heels, and uh, there is a current exhibition about uh, actually men in uh, wearing heels uh, called Standing Tall uh, that is currently at the Battashu Museum. And, Elizabeth, you had mentioned briefly, and only uh, so I'd like to talk a little bit more, about an exhibition that is now uh, traveling uh, and that will open here in New York at the uh, Brooklyn Museum in July called, um, well, I know it's about sneakers. What is the actual title? The title uh, at Brooklyn is The Rise of Sneaker Culture. And uh, so could you share a little bit about uh, how you landed on this topic and then what the exhibit's about? Uh, 
Yeah, absolutely. And it is related to sort of what we were talking about before. Um, the actual impetus was a graduate student had come <clears throat> to ask me some questions. He was working on a brand of sneakers called Visvem sneakers that have a lot of uh, moccasin-like influence. And so he, I, I took him down into the storage. We were looking at some moccasins. And after, he said, now can I see your sneaker collection? And I had to tell him that sneakers had not been a focus of, of our collecting. And he said, well, you have to change that. And he was right. I mean, sneaker culture and sneakers are such an important part of men's fashion today, increasingly women's fashion. And sneakers have been really important to uh, different types of masculinity since the sneaker was introduced that I took that challenge and decided to do a sneaker exhibition. And so as I did with Heights of Fashion, I wanted to not simply talk about sneakers and their currency today, but to ask my favorite question, which is, why? Why the sneaker at all? And so the exhibition actually goes all the way back to vulcanized rubber uh, in the, the 1830s and and talks about who sneakers were first made for. And in fact, they were made first for the privileged. Those who had the time to play uh, wanted to be able to wear clothing that expressed that they had this leisure time. And rubber, which is the sap of a tree, uh, was itself very expensive in the middle of the 19th century. And so sneakers started out as signifiers of status and privilege. And I wanted to chart the 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 history of the sneaker and find out how was it that it came to be democratized. It turns out that it came to be democratized during the interwar period between World War I and World War II when, and this is my theory, that when uh, all of the devastation wrought by World War I made people around the world very concerned that their populations were not fit enough in case a second uh, war broke out. And so this is when physical education is really promoted in schools and when ideas of racial superiority become very complicated and menacing. Uh, and, and you see in countries, especially uh, in Germany and in other, uh, and, and in the fascist countries where they're expecting all of their citizens to get outside and exercise, and they do these huge exercise demonstrations with thousands of people, all of whom are wearing sneakers. So the sneaker is actually democratized during this moment of political, um, uh, concerning political ideology around race. And then after World War II, with the baby boom, sneakers are cheap and available at that point, and they become associated with youth and childhood and are reinstated as objects of uh, privilege with the me generation and the introduction of very high-end running shoes like Nike's uh, famous waffle trainer. And pretty soon then those shoes that are being worn for marathons and elite runners find their, themselves on the feet of people at Studio 54, and they become reintroduced as an item of fashion. And, of course, we know the sneaker, particularly the basketball shoe, has been so central to urban fashion. And now, today, I argue that the sneaker and its bright, bright colors is the most Baroque form of uh, footwear or the most broke item of dress that men are willing to wear today. And so I find this long history quite interesting, and I find that sneakers are 
allowing men to express greater individuality through dress and is starting to break down that uh, uniform of authority, the business suit, and allowing different forms of masculine success to make their way visually into our culture. That is fascinating, and I and I had never thought about it in uh, in terms of of ex- of uh, personal expression. Yeah, and and I think that dress. I mean, ultimately, I have some issues with even the idea that we have agency related to what we put on our bodies. But that's a different show. Um, I think that women have historically, or at least for a long time, had the obligation as well as the privilege of expressing individuality through dress. We know that, God forbid, any one of us show up at the par- at, a, at a party wearing the same thing. Men, however, have had the privilege and the restriction of dressing all the same. And so there, there's some value to having a uniform of authority, the three-piece suit or the, the suit. But at the same time, if you want to differentiate yourself from the crowd, there wasn't much wiggle room for men beyond maybe the color of their tie. So sneakers are allowing men to express really quite nuanced uh, social identities. You know that if somebody's wearing a pair of Chuck Taylors, you know, sort of an old school, classic canvas high top, they're, they're able to say, or they're expressing one aspect of themselves. And then if they wear the latest and greatest, say, Air Jordan, they're saying something different. And and thirdly, if they're wearing the latest designer sneaker, they're saying yet another thing. And so their their clothing can stay exactly the same for each one of those shoe pairings. It's the shoe that transforms their outfit into the nuanced statement that it can be. And so I think that sneakers are allowing men or inviting men into the fashion system in a way that no other aspect of men's dress has really done to this date. And so sneakers, I think, are really suggesting a seismic shift in both masculinity but also men's participation in fashion. I I just find that uh, amazing, and and again, I will. Uh, this discussion has heightened my awareness, so I'm going to start uh, walking and looking down more to see what. <laughs> I know uh, it actually becomes <laughs> a curse. <laughs> just make sure you don't walk into something. <laughs> I didn't think about that as a as as a professional challenge, but it probably <laughs> is. Uh, I'm wondering too, though. I mean, we've we, you know we've been talking about fashion and motivation of fashion, and and then you were talking about exercise. But is has the oh just the feeling over the last you know twenty uh, twenty years for both men and women uh, who are gravitating to clothing that is more practical for their lifestyles, is more comfortable, uh, you know, certainly that uh, white shirt and tie can't be very comfortable for men, and I see more men with open, uh, you know, open collars, uh, more, uh, more relaxed dress codes in offices. Is that, uh, do you think, also part and part? parcel of this sort of sneaker movement of people, both men and women, women wanting shoes that maybe look snazzy but are just darn more comfortable? Yeah, I think, I think it very much is related. I don't know that 
I mean, I think comfort is a wonderful side benefit of sneakers. Um, but I think that really what's happened and why footwear in general is so important culturally at the moment is that you're absolutely right. We've moved m- towards a much more casual way of dressing. And with that casualness, we've lost many principal signifiers of status. And so, you know, if you watched I Love Lucy in the 50s, she was always hat crazy. Um, you know, she would buy, she'd walk by a hat store, couldn't control herself, buy a hat, have to hide it from Ricky. Well, women don't have hats anymore as a means of expressing fashion consumption or status. We now can almost wear the exact same t-shirt and jeans as the men in our lives. And so as we have lost other signifiers of gender and dress, we continue to wear footwear, however, that can signify all of those important social cues. And that's why I think shoes have become so important. And so, and so many different types of shoes are available. If we can think of dress as a kind of visual vocabulary through, by which we speak to others about ourselves, um, footwear, I think, is one of the most important uh, uh, ways of communicating. And, and so if you have on a t-shirt and jeans and your partner has on a t-shirt and jeans, but you're wearing sexy high heels and he's wearing the latest sneaker, you both are able to convey nuanced expressions about gender and social identity just at the footwear alone. That's, that is, again, uh, very, very interesting. Uh, I suppose, though, that we all come to a point in our, our lives where we will seek comfort over fashion, and, but maybe that doesn't have anything to do with material culture as, as much as it does, does with uh, just simple aging. Well, I find it very interesting with that whenever I lecture, very often women who haven't shown up in fabulous high heels will apologize. Their first words to me are, I used to wear high heels, but I can't anymore. I'm sorry. And I I find even that an interesting statement. But now flats are the new thing for women. So I think that uh, comfort, as you were suggesting, and fashionable, fashionability are, are increasingly at our at our toe tips, I was going to say fingertips. <laughs> See, I told you it was it was a show that was just rift with puns. I know, and it I is, was a, really proud of myself for not doing one. So I'm glad that you broke the. Uh, I'm, broke I'm that sorry, taboo. I apologize. <laughs> no, it's quite all right. We have just a couple of minutes. Um, can you share with us any insights? What's next? What's the uh, new exhibit that you might be working on that we can uh, anticipate for next year? Absolutely. Um, We're opening an exhibition on the circumpolar regions. Uh, Mrs. Bata supported field research to every circumpolar country, and we have probably, again, one of the richest circumpolar footwear collections. And I think what's going to be exciting about that exhibition is that many of us think the Arctic is one monolithic thing, and indeed there are commonalities across that great expanse of the globe uh, in terms of cold environment. But what's so amazing is that the people who live in the circumpolar regions have answered their, their physical and cultural needs through footwear so differently. So I think that realizing how diverse uh, the cultures are that live in the circumpolar regions and looking at that diversity through their footwear uh, is 
going to be fantastic in that exhibition. And then I am going to be doing an exhibition that looks at um, footwear from the 30s to the 50s. It's called The Accessories of War. And uh, footwear was actually very important uh, politically and um, in relation to gender as well during that in that period between 1930 and 1950 and some of the most inventive footwear uh, in women's fashion was created at that time so those are the two uh, upcoming exhibitions well fabulous uh, I, can't, I can't wait and uh, I am certainly going to plan a uh, another trip up to Toronto uh, uh, certainly in the spring or the summer, don't get me wrong. <laughs> yes, but I don't blame I, uh, you. I'm, I'm, I'm quite a snow pansy anymore, having spent most of my adult life here in, uh, in the mid-Atlantic region. And, uh, but I, again, it is, it is a fabulous museum, and it seems to me that you can, uh, in addition to Mrs. Bata, who had the foresight to uh, start this very interesting collection, you can be con- credited and congratulated on uh, taking the uh, the museum, and I was going to say elevate, but I won't, uh, to, a, uh, uh, to a much richer and deeper level and helping us all understand how we can learn more about ourselves and our past uh, through uh, how we, uh, what we put on our feet and how we choose to do that. Elizabeth, it has been such a pleasure and fun time talking with you today. Uh, I'm going to also make sure that I get to see the uh, sneaker exhibit that is opening, uh, you said July 10th, at the uh, Brooklyn Museum and then is going to go on to the Toledo Museum of Art. Uh, So I am sure that people can find out more about that uh, uh, traveling exhibition as well. It has been just a pleasure. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you. The pleasure is mine. And we will be back next week with another edition of Museum Life. Again, please uh, feel free to uh, send me a tweet or an email at carol.bossert at verizon.net. I'm always interested in hearing from you and uh, what you think about the show. So until next week, uh, thank you for listening. This is Carol Bossert for Museum Life. Thank you for tuning in this week to Museum Life. Please join your host, Carol Bossert, again next Friday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. What museum issue is on your mind? Tell Carol at carol.bossert at verizon.net.